Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, I'm uh, calling this talk, uh, The Conflict Campaign, uh, A Paradoxical Thinking Experiment in Israel. And uh, for those who are listening um, that aren't here, a lot of people listen to uh, the talk online. Um, As I mentioned, I've been away for the last uh, two months uh, teaching and traveling uh, in Europe and Israel. And I'll share a little bit about my trip um, in general before focusing on, on my Israeli part. Um, first, it's, uh, it's such a, a rare uh, and amazing um, opportunity to go traveling to different countries and seeing uh, different cultures and being able to share share these teachings that uh, have meant so much to me. Uh, the, the one concern I have in the hesitation is the carbon footprint, uh, which is something I haven't quite figured out yet. But the way uh, I've justified is that people have asked me to come there and as a number of people said it's better than a whole lot of people flying to come to Spirit Rock. Um, But other than that I wanted to make it worth my while to to go traveling. And and so in the last number of years, uh, in the summers I've gone to, uh, I I teach in uh, uh, Germany uh, each year, Germany or Austria and uh, Finland uh, usually, and also was in uh, uh, in England teaching there. Uh, we spent a, a few days. Jane came with me, uh, my wife, who also teaches, and uh, uh, we spent a few days in in Spain where I'd never been before. Um, and then we went to Israel. Or actually, I went to Israel. Jane said, "Okay, now I'm I'm coming home." She wasn't crazy about the heat, uh, and also uh, it was time for her to come home. So, first, to uh, if you've done if you've done any traveling, you know what a what an an interesting. Uh, experience to go from one culture to another and just see these different ways of being. And you learn about people, you learn about yourself. When you're traveling, you're not in any role where people, well, I'm in a role in the teaching part, but other than that, you know, I'm not with my, my family or friends or, you know, I'm I discover another part of me, you know, when being in that traveling mode. Um, but going from one culture to another is really fascinating. It's kind of like 
meeting a new personality in each time. And I, of course, uh, there's wide variations in every culture. So it's not like everybody is the same in Germany or Finland or whatever. Uh, but there's definitely a personality in a culture, just like there's a personality, a general feeling. I often th- uh, have thought about this. San Francisco has a different kind of vibe than Los Angeles or than um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or than New York, or than wherever. Each place some mysteriously has its own personality that is in the air, in the atmosphere. And it's, it's amazing, it's beautiful to see how many different ways there are to be that all have the, the same common denominator that people are people and just like you and me, they want to be happy, they want to feel safe, they want to love, they want to be loved. And they, and each culture has a different way of expressing that. It's kind of like, you know, snowflakes. None is the same, and they're all, they all can be beautiful in their their own way. There's so many. It's a thought that often occurs to me. So many different flavors of being beautiful in this world, and there are different flavors of being not so beautiful in this world too. I don't want to. You know, have my head in the sand, but um, especially uh, being around people who um, are sincere about growing more in, in consciousness, I, it's easy to see the goodness and the, and the beauty. Um, let's see, but I, I had a few thoughts of, well, yeah, I was just mentioned this, and, and your, your relationship to those places can change as well. When I, when I first went to Germany many years ago, uh, when, I was, when I was younger, I thought, can I go to Germany? I was raised Jewish. And the thought of the word Germany just made me contracted and frightened and uh, all kinds of stuff that got stirred up. And I love German people. They're just, they're so um, sincere and caring and deep. And, um, and now the, the irony is that you know, I think of Germany as the, the leader of the free world in consciousness with... Uh, and they have their own problems. It's not to, you know, of course, they've got uh, different perspectives, but uh, Angela Merkel was an environmental scientist before she became a politician and is really committed to uh, climate consciousness. And they're the ones that opened up their doors for refugees, and she's paying a price for it, but the German people have their own um, processing of what happened in World War II. And there's, uh, there's a kind of humility as well as um, 
as well as loving their culture. My wife was there a few years ago when they won the World Cup, and it was the one time that people put their flags out. They don't put their flags out in Germany, usually. We are, this is our country. There's a kind of mm, processing of what had been German pride. But for World Cup, they put it out. Okay. Um, and um, and they're, they're so sincere and so appreciative. And I've gone there the last five years, so I, I've gotten to know people year after year. And um, I just love being there and so warmly received. Uh, then going to, uh, to Finland... Where I've also been for for four, I think this is the fourth year that I've been there, and Finnish Finns, uh, Finland is between Sweden and Russia, and their whole history has been um, <laughs> one of being invaded by one or the other, and so there's a kind of. Mm, Humility, and it's not like, oh, we're the greatest. Their war museum is a war museum about how awful war is, not how wonderful and our, our victories and all. And, and uh, the Finns are, um, they're very, they're, they by nature are very quiet. Um, and uh, it, it says so in the guidebooks, you know, don't, don't think that they're being unfriendly if, they're, if they don't say, hi, how are you doing? But once you get them talking, then there's a real warmth there. And uh, going through half the year in, at light and half the year in dark, that has its toll as well. Um, and they're very finished design. They're known for finished design, for just thinking things through and being very efficient in their thinking and... Uh, but then you you go underneath to this deep um, their own way of caring and and um, uh, sincerity and once they open up their hearts are so wide open. So then I, I went to Israel and it's been um, 22 years since the last time I went to Israel. I was invited to teach uh, a retreat there in 1996, which I did, which was very um, inspiring. But for one reason or another, I I haven't gone back, although I've been invited. Um, but uh, I decided it was time for me to go. And... Um, the Israeli community, the Dharma community there is really strong. It's uh, headed by this uh, wonderful teacher, Stephen Folder, who's an old friend, um, and he created this organization, Tovana. And they have, they put on, I think it's 45 retreats, weekends and week-longs throughout the year staffed by 300, a pool of 300 volunteers completely on Donna, on just, they show up and they say, I'll, I'll staff the next retreat. 
the the waiting list for the retreats is long. I t- the retreats I taught, I taught a weekend, and then I taught a week long, back to back. Just a few people were on both. Um, 90 people on the weekend and about 75 on the on the week week long with long waiting lists. Uh, and this is just for experienced students. It wasn't for new students, just for experienced. And uh, uh, they asked if I teach about joy for those who are not who who are here for the first time. I wrote a book called Awakening Joy, and I teach a a course on how these teachings can be applied for happiness. And they said we could use some joy here. Um, and uh, so, it was so um, I was so warmly received. Uh, and the, the, the retreat is done on a kibbutz, um, uh, this community that uh, opens their doors to the, uh, to the uh, Dharma communities. Uh, Israelis are called sabras, That's one name for them. And sabra is a fruit that is prickly on the outside and very soft on the inside. And makes sense. Mm. And you can uh, you can feel in the air the the cloud of the conflict and tension. Um, although walking where I was, I was in the Berkeley of Israel. People kept, said, you're in the Berkeley of Israel. It's called a place called Pardes Hana, where it's very conscious and kind of hip and uh, um, um, where I was staying with some friends. Um, but I was safe walking around there. It wasn't in Jerusalem or on the border. Um, but you can still kind of, it's, it's, yeah, I could feel it everywhere. Or was aware of it anyway. And certainly would come up on the retreats when people would come in and share about their practice. Mm. I also... Um, Besides teaching the retreats and giving a, a public talk in, in Tel Aviv, uh, I met one evening with uh, people who um, who teach mindfulness in Arabic, and they're teaching to uh, Palestinians and Israeli Arabs and Syrian uh, refugees, and that was uh, that was very moving. Um, and then we went on a tour of the West Bank. Um, this fellow, Aviv Tatarsky, uh, is this very, very committed Dharma practitioner who for years has brought people on tours to see what life is like in, uh, in Palestine. And um, my being there, there was a little bit more of a of a, a buzz, and they rented a bus, and 50 people, it was, again, a waiting list to get on, we all, 50 of us went to visit in Palestine, uh, just 20 minutes from Jerusalem to this town, Walaja, uh, where we um, were on a tour and seeing what life 
is like there. And um, we were also uh, met with, uh, met by this very beautiful, wise um, elder, uh, Palestinian elder. And actually, here, I have a picture of him who um, brought, uh, he, uh, he lets Aviv uh, bring visitors into his home and he talks about what life is like. Um, but he has this beautiful spirit, uh, just so warm and welcoming. And he has his wife serve little coffee cups uh, to, um, to everyone. And he's there to answer questions and share his story. And uh, first I'll, I'll show you a picture. Uh, this is uh, uh, Abu Nidal, his name is. And I don't know if you, you can see, but... Maybe you can see his warmth and goodness right right in the picture. And this is about uh, 50 people crammed into this small room that um, we then spent a, a, an hour or so with him. Um, and uh, it's really painful. It's really painful to hear what uh, their life is like. He's, um, he's in this area. They've erected a wall, the Palestinians on one side and the uh, Israeli territory on the other. And what they've done, this is not just in Jerusalem. This is outside of Jerusalem. They're creating this big park but the the Israeli government has taken the best of the land for the park and left really nothing for the Palestinians who have to come into um, those who have a permit can come in who have some work to do in uh, in Jerusalem, but most can't come in, and there's not much for them to do. There's not much work for them in Walaja or in Palestine. And so you've got a whole lot of people sitting around and just, what do we do? So, of course, that has its effects as well. Um, And all of the homes, or most of the homes, have demolition orders that at any time they could come and just demolish your home. And we visited a few that, um, that that happened. I have some pictures of demolished homes. And he he's a, he's a, um, was a construction uh, worker, and he built his home. He's, his family has been on this land for generations and many, many, many generations. But um, he, um, he did construct his own home. And there's an order for it that at any time they can come in and tear it down. Um, and I, I asked him, he was so warm and just so patient and, and caring and loving. And I said, well, how do you keep your heart open and so warm and with 
um, these Israelis and Israelis in general. And he said, people are people. There's good people and there's uh, people whose hearts are closed. And if you can see the goodness in people and they can feel uh, that connection with you, then they're good. It doesn't matter what they are, whether they're Arab, Israeli, uh, uh, Jewish, whatever, Palestinian. Um, And it was really inspiring to see this guy somehow walks his talk. Mm. So I, having Jewish roots, have had my own inner conflict. You know, uh, I, uh, it's been painful for many years. It's, it's probably the main reason I didn't go back to Israel because it just, it seemed too crazy and too painful. And how could they do, how could they be so blind? Of course, we're seeing all the time how people can be blind uh, right here in this country, blinded by hatred or fear or divisiveness or feeling threatened. Um, and uh, and so I, I, I said, if I'm going to come back and teach, I want to meet Palestinians. I want to uh, see what's going on. <clears throat> and um, the people that I was staying with One of the reasons that I went back uh, were I have some good friends who live in Partisana uh, and who I first met when I was teaching a retreat 22 years ago. Uh, This woman, Michal, was a cook on the retreat and she just touched my heart saying, wow, this is a neat person. We just had this wonderful connection. And a few years later, she and her husband, Romem, and uh, a third woman, uh, Limor, came to America. And maybe if you've been around, you might remember their visit. This is uh, in uh, 16 years ago, like 2002 or so, doing a one-woman show. Uh, Limor, the writer, uh, wrote this play about being uh, an, um, on a retreat in Thailand, 24-day retreat, three days of which in this retreat format, you don't sleep towards the end of the retreat. And this play was about what she went through. And Michal is an actress, a really great actress. And she played, uh, was the, was the uh, actress in the play, and Romem was the producer, and I set them up on about 14 different places for them to, to do this play, uh, one of which was Spirit Rock. Did anybody happen to see that? No? Okay. It's a great play. So anyway, um, we had this connection, and I was going to be uh, staying with them. I said, if I can visit Michal and Romem and their family, okay, that, that cinches it. I'll... I'll I'll go and teach and I'll meet the Israelis. Well, it turns out that Romem is this amazingly talented 
guy who's a marketing um, expert. And he was in marketing for a number of years and as he said, his, his, it was draining his soul until he decided that he would just market good causes. And so he, uh, he has these campaigns where their uh, consciousness of looking across the street, be, uh, looking at the driver's eyes before you go across the street, and there's billboards everywhere, and uh, a lot of really good causes. And his, his firm is called Proban. Not pro bono, but pro bon, like good cause. Uh, and uh, he got involved with this campaign called the Conflict Campaign, where he was the creative director of it. And I'll share a little bit about it, and then I want you, I'm going to play you a. Um, uh, you won't see the video, but you'll hear the audio, uh, a five-minute clip of this campaign. And what they did, it was put together by this guy uh, named Yitzchak Frankenthal, who lost his son uh, to uh, terrorist um, activity and who became... um, instead of becoming bitter uh, and being more alienated, said, we have to find a way to have peace. And so he created this, what's the name of it? Fund for Reconciliation, Tolerance, and Peace. And he's been working tirelessly for peace for the last uh, 20 plus years. And so he decided, um, he, he brought Romem in and he said, let's figure out a campaign. We'll have it as a pilot going to one town and see if there's some way that we could change around the polarized thinking of the, of the culture. So I'm going to play you the the clip if i can find where's my where's my boom box anybody see it around where's the boom hold on it's around here somewhere where is it uh-huh oh thank you i needed to get out of the way My name is Yitzhak Fangenthal. I was a businessman until July 1994 when my eldest son, Arik, was killed up and murdered by Hamas. I realized that I lost my son only because there is no peace. I left my business and I decided to try to do the utmost to find a peace solution between the Israelis and Palestinians. I failed. And not only me, all the peace organization we failed. We raised millions of dollars 
to try to market the peace to the Israeli society, and the result is much worse than it was before. We try to understand what the Israeli society wants. We understood that they don't want to hear about peace. So what else? And then we found something that the Israelis are attached to. We wouldn't have our folklore without the conflict. There's some underneath. These are all um, uh, big um, scenes of conflict. It's not satire and it's not irony. This is Romem, my friend. Advertisement that shows to the viewers like a mirror what's in it for me in the conflict. And when it comes to the conflict, there's a lot of planning for us Israelis. Okay, we need the conflict because uh, without it we wouldn't have uh, heroes. We wouldn't have our songs, we wouldn't have the armies, we wouldn't have wars, we wouldn't have memorial days. Uh, it gives us a, an emotional uh, kind of uh, root. It unifies us, it makes us uh, one. We like hanging on the edge and saying, this is the very last minute. This is our identity. We call it the conflict. But this is who we are. When people hold very, very strong beliefs about certain issues, you cannot try to convince them by just presenting them with the opposite ideas. So what paradoxical thinking does is that it brings people to the absurd by presenting them their own ideas, but only in a very, very extreme way on to extreme level. And when people are presented with their own ideas in an extreme or radical way, they tend to re-examine their ideas and entertain some new ideas or new solutions to the same problem. So we made an advertising campaign for the conflict. We actually branded the conflict. And we made those ads to show people all the advantages in the conflict and actually convince them how much they need the conflict. We set up an academic experiment in which we showed people the conflict ads together with traditional commercials, and we exposed them to hundreds of participants among the Israeli society. And then something happened that sometimes happens in marketing. The campaign failed. <laughs> it failed because uh, although we, we, we exposed the people to a solid fact, and we told them that they needed the conflict, and it defined them, they were willing to uh, drop it. We found statistically significant differences between participants who watched the conflict videos to those in the control condition in terms of their willingness to accept responsibility for the continuation of the conflict, in terms of their willingness to make significant compromises in the context of the conflict, and even in terms of their voting intentions in the Israeli elections. And more interestingly, those difference, differences were mostly pronounced among those in the center and right wing of the political Israeli system. That's when we realized that we got something very unique in our hand, and as we fail, we succeed. It was amazing, something paradoxical, but that was our taglit, how you say this, our discovery. Actually, it turned out to be a very meaningful study in the field of social psychology. It was published in one of the most important journals in the field, in PNAS, and got a very wide exposure in the public media. It's the first time over 40 years, with all the efforts to find a peace solution, that we got a chance to make a difference in our region.
What's really important for us is to, is to examine whether we can actually implement this project among the Israeli and Palestinian society and create a real change that is based on the results of the paradoxical thinking project. Because we don't need to succeed. We need to fail. So, um, here was, you couldn't see it on the, there was a, it's a video on this, you couldn't see some of the, um, uh, some of the graphics. 30% in the experimental group, they had an experimental and a control group. 30% changed uh, the party that they intended to vote for in the coming elections after having been told, you need the conflict. They kept on getting hammered. You need this conflict. And there's something in, in, in the human mind that says, don't tell me what to do. You know? Don't tell me that I need the conflict. Hold on a moment. Don't, don't ram it down my throat. Well, hold on a second. Do I really need this conflict? And 30% changed their intended party that they were going to vote for. Mostly on the, the right and centrists were the ones that were most, um, most apt to change. Uh, the, um, they were more willing to accept responsibility for their part in continuing the conflict and they were more willing to compromise than the control group. Um, and they had all of these, you can't see it uh, on, on the uh, video, it says, you know, for the sake of our identity, we need the conflict. Without it, we wouldn't have our heritage. We need the conflict. For the sake of our army, we probably need the conflict. And they were... They were having all of these, they had billboards around and they had leaflets and they had, and they exposed a number of people to videos. So um, it, they just did it in this one town. And now, uh, Romem has said um, that they got this grant and they're, uh, in November, they're doing... Um, doing it in six different areas. They've got a um, million dollar grant to do six different approaches. One of the six is a control group and one of them is what they did uh, the last time and then another, they're adding on a few other elements and they're seeing they want to have statistical uh, analysis of what works the best. Um, and it's going to be a six-week campaign with leaflets and videos. You can't do anything on on TV, uh, political, except for the elections. Uh, but what they'd expose people to are videos of ads. In the control group, they would just have ads. In the experimental group, they'd have ads but have these uh, these conflict messages inserted in the, the videos that they would see. Uh, it was a number of different um, uh, elements to, to the campaign. Um, I just find that so fascinating that people will resist most anything 
if they're told this is how you should feel, uh, unless they're completely um, seduced by by that thinking. Um, and uh, I was just trying to think if it's possible to apply that here. It might not. It might not work in the same way. What's that? It's already happening, yeah. But whether... It's just so uh, fascinating. The human mind can be shaped in any way. That's the thing that uh, I think as Dharma practitioners and meditators and people who are exploring um, consciousness works, it can be shaped in any way. It can be shaped by fear. It can be shaped by hatred. It can be shaped by greed. It can be shaped by consciousness. As uh, that Nelson Mandela quote that I've, I've mentioned here before, uh, people aren't born learning how to hate. They have to learn how to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can also learn not to hate and to love. And we see the possibility of changing our thinking about things. Have you seen how your thinking might have changed since maybe you were a teenager about certain things? Or about your perspective on whether it's people different than you or having a a different gender or a sexual orientation or there's conventional wisdom can change as well. And we've seen it in the last 20, 30, 50 years on so many different um, topics. And I, I remember this study, I think it was Stanford, that said all you need to do is for conventional wisdom to change is for 10% of the population to change. Because most people are sitting on the sidelines saying, well, what should, I, what should I believe? Tell me. But if you get a shift, there's a kind of crescendo that makes things that were okay not okay anymore. It's not okay to use certain words anymore. It might still be done but it's not okay. It's not okay to discriminate because of uh, gender or um, um, sexual harassment or uh, so many different ways of injustice. It might still be happening and there's plenty to go, but the first step is it's not okay. And not to minimize that and thinking, well, yeah, we're, we're, we, we're, let's not kid ourselves. There's still discrimination and bigotry and hatred all over. That's happening, but it's not okay. And that is part of a, a shift of consciousness that can happen. This was a couple of months and people changed the way they felt about the conflict. So 
it gives me hope and it also makes me that much more committed and I know that I'm not alone here. So many of us are committed to bringing as much consciousness as we can into the world. First, we we wake ourselves up and just in doing that, that's contagious. And there's a movement towards more consciousness uh, that's happening along with as much hate as there is in this world, as much greed and as much divisiveness, there's never been as much caring and consciousness and wanting to make this a better world. So it's a, a kind of uh, joyful responsibility, as Julia Butterfly Hill uh, says, uh, to, uh, to change our own thinking and uh, in the process um, affect everyone around us. So maybe I'll just uh, stop here and see any comments, any questions. Um, Thanks, Andrew. Here's one right over here. Well, you were wondering if this would work in America. I mean, he said something like, when people were exposed with their argument, when people were exposed to their arguments, put into extreme and absurd, uh, you know, uh, terms and, you know, taken to their ridiculous extremes, the people realized how, you know, how absurd their arguments were. I don't think you could do that to Americans. I mean, you can sh- you can show some people the absurdity of their arguments and it doesn't matter. They still believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although, and it's true, there are some people that won't change no matter what. I mean, it wasn't like 100% of the, the, uh, the people who were... Um, in favor of the conflict changed. 30% changed. But in our country, there's a whole lot of people who were uh, who have shifted, who've been independents, who have shifted their, uh, their awareness because seeing the absurdity as well. So it's hard to say. Yeah, Vera. Thank you, James. Um, I resonated with a lot of what you shared about the experience of going to Israel and the West Bank. I also have Jewish roots, and I also have a Palestinian grandparent. And I just want to share, I was fortunate enough to meet two of my great uncles who were fortunate enough after they left Palestine to end up in Jordan, and they stayed in the Middle East. And one of them was... um, he was very resentful and bitter and he spoke about the injustice and the suffering and he was sort of stuck in the past and you could see the suffering that was stuck inside of him. And the other one just had this beautiful light in his eyes and he was just a really inspiring person and had been a leader in Jordan after they left Palestine. And I asked him, you know, how did you, you suffered the same history, the same injustice, how did you get to this place? And he said, you know, the the Jews are there now, before that we were there, before us there were other people, before them there were other people. And he he sort of managed to depersonalize it and see this bigger context and he didn't deny the suffering or the injustice, but he found a way not to view it as, as a, a personal wrong, but rather to see the humanity mm-hmm. in everything that had happened. And it just created this freedom in his heart. So I just wanted to share that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
And it can go either way. Of co- and it's understandable. You just see causes and conditions. It's not like one is, you know, is... Um, they're both understandable. And when there's shame or humiliation, there can be bitterness and there can be anger and, and hatred. And every now and then it's possible that it opens the heart to see, oh, there might be another way. It's like the, there's the, I, I've mentioned here before about the, the simile of the saw. The Buddha has this, this simile. He says, even if somebody were to be sawing off your limb, don't respond with hatred. Stop them, do what you can to stop them, but hatred just becomes a poison for yourself. Um, That's a very tall order, but it's something that we can um, at least aspire to. Yeah. Yes. Could you post some of what's been written about this conflict? I don't know what to call it. What, the the conflict campaign? Yeah. Yeah, I I think when I uh, post it up on uh, Dharma Seed, I can put uh, the YouTube uh, clips. uh, Yeah, because it's a very interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Anything else? Or while we hear about practice, anything uh, you want to bring up? Going once, going twice. Okay, so let's, uh, we can close. And uh, have a short loving kindness. Just a few moments of caring, compassion for all those who are suffering. And all those who through their confusion cause suffering. And for all those experiencing happiness and for those who are helping create more happiness in the world. Sending out thoughts of kindness and caring and well-being and consciousness and peace. As I want peace inside, may all beings find inner peace. As I want happiness for myself, may all beings find true happiness. And 
we can include the planet Earth that so needs our caring. And may our coming here together, any good that comes from it, be shared and be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you very much for coming, sharing the evening. Have a good evening, and uh, please come back. <laughs>